Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. All right. Today's movie was suggested to us by our good friend, Tom. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rants where anything goes. Today's movie is 1920s, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The genre is fantasy horror mystery, actually one of the first horror movies uh, that has been quoted in, in time. Uh, the director was Robert Wine or Robert Vina. Director also directed movies such as Raskolnikov, uh, based on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, that was in 1923. The Hands of Orlock, which was 1924, also another spooky film he did. And an interesting thought here was when he was filming Ultimatum, 1938, he actually died in Paris 10 days before the end of production of the spy film. Some other uh, popular movies, uh, actually the highest grossing movies of 1920, were Way Down East, Over the Hill to the Poor House, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Pollyanna, and Shipwrecked Among Cannibals. Another notable movie of that year was The Mark of Zorro, starring Douglas Fairbanks. Another interesting tidbit from that year, in August, the CBC Film Sales Corporation was founded by Jack Cohn, Jerry Brandt, and Harry Cohn, which would later become what is today known as the Columbia Pictures uh, Film Theater, uh, film production. Tom, tell us a little bit about this movie and why you uh, selected it for us to discuss today. All right. So The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is, I'll give you a little plot summary, um, in a... German town, a mysterious doctor comes with a somnambulist uh, exhibit in which a figure who has been asleep for his whole life wakes up and makes predictions. However, once this mysterious doctor arrives, death follows. Um, this movie then ends with a spectacular twist, uh, which the audience will not see coming. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of the plot there. Um, I brought this movie to you guys just because I think it is sitting at kind of the intersection of a lot of really major, interesting artistic and historical occurrences. Artistic both in theater, in pictorial art, um, and that, you know, pictorial art, cinema, it kind of changes cinema. It's also a big part of this kind of disruption of um, the kind of German cinema and European cinema history. And it is also responding to these kind of historical circumstances, which are extremely unusual. I think for that reason, this is one of the most important movies, even though its effect probably wasn't felt till many years after it was made. Uh, Tom, very interesting. KJ, did you have any experience with this movie? And what are some of your initial thoughts? I did not have any experience with this movie before Tom had suggested it. In fact, I had not heard of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, and I'd like to admit something here on the podcast here today. Normally, during movies, I fall asleep quite a bit. Any movie. During the movie, it's going on. I can feel the sleep coming. I note the time marker, fall asleep. When I wake up, I go try to find that time marker again. This happens to me 
all day long. I've seen a few silent movies, and this does not happen during silent movies because you need to watch these things like a hawk. Not only do you need to be there for the, we call them subtitles, or just titles, they're not subbed, but- Intertitles. Intertitles, so you gotta see those intertitles. Also, a lot of the story is told visually because there is no sound, and you just need to be paying attention. However, any silent movie I've watched, for the most part, I have not been able to follow the plot. And the cabinet of Dr. Caligari was no exception. The big twist that Tom talked about earlier, I missed completely. I had no idea that it happened until I read it on Wikipedia after I'd watched the movie. This was a good movie, but I think it was pretty tough. Okay. Thanks, KJ. Uh, I had a a different experience, although I don't have a lot of uh, history watching silent pictures. So this was... uh, I was looking forward to it. Just a different, different experience. Uh, I was able to follow the twists and tales to the, to the actual twist at the end there. Uh, I did thoroughly enjoy it. I was actually pretty happy with how it ended up because there were parts where I was kind of trying to figure out where they were going with this or what was going on. But I, I did catch that at the end that he was, I guess we'll talk about it later. Um, but it was fun for me. It was a little different. Uh, there was some things I had to recall after. For a second there, I missed one of the deaths <laughs> that happened. I was trying to recall because uh, they speak of uh, different people uh, that were uh, taken out during the movie. Uh, but after thinking about it, I did kind of make sense of it all. But I, I, I actually really enjoyed the twist at the end and just the, the whole portrayal. But we'll go into more of the things that I enjoyed about it later. So, Tom, uh, we're at that moment where I'm going to turn it over to you for Movie Quiz. It's time for Movie Quiz. All right, here we are at Movie Quiz, and we're at round one. Gentlemen, here are the three categories, and um, let's start with Kevin. Also known as KJ. <laughs> <laughs> the K does stand for Kevin. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wondering, the J stands for James. Yeah. <laughs> we we share a middle name, but anyway, for KJ, we'll start with you. Here are the three categories. Please pick one: reality as an option, framed for a crime, love and loss. You know, in these trying times that we find ourselves in, I wouldn't mind reality as an option. Okay, very good. Question number one, worth one point. Reality as an option. It's time for question one. Who is the real Dr. Caligari? There is more than one answer I will let you know. Who is the real Dr. Caligari? I think I'm locked in. I'm locked in. Do we get a bonus point if we get both? Yes. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. We'll start with Kevin. All right. So I have two answers. The first answer is Dr. Caligari, and this is kind of part of the big twist I guess we're revealing here and now, is actually head of a mental hospital. But my other answer is a little more philosophical. Dr. Caligari is really who we all turn to when we're unsure of our reality, isn't it? He represents our fears and our, our hopes. And really he's just the guy making sure everything turns out. Okay. 
All that's right. A, that's an answer. <laughs> that is an answer. <laughs> oh, thank My you turn. for that. Thank, thank you for that BS. <laughs> now, Nick, what is your answer? Okay. My first answer is exactly the same as KJ's, where it was, uh, he was the, the head of the insane asylum that uh, Francis was a guest of. And the second answer, while KJ's philosophical version is of some intrigue, it was a story of an actual Dr. Caligari, I think it was in Italy, who was traveling with the somnambulist, uh, and that's where this story was based off of. In the in Francis's mind, very good. Exactly, that is the full answer. Um, both of you get one point. Nick gets two points. Ooh. Wow! Yeah, because he got both of them. Yes, Caligari was not only the director of the asylum, but Caligari is this late 18th-century mysterious figure that traveled northern Italy with his exhibit. So, Nick, you are in the lead. Two, two, one. Very good. You know what? I I just wanted to say this week I was happy that no matter how it turns out, Tom will not be victorious (laughs) because he's won every episode. I may, I may make both of you lose. Yeah, we get enough negative points. I goes to the host. Yeah, oh, round God. three is negative questions. <laughs> okay, Just sorry about that. All right. Now, Nick, okay. you're up. Your two remaining categories are framed for a crime and love and loss. You know what? KJ was getting a little philosophical, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for something deep here. We're going to go with love and loss. All right. You have selected the least philosophical question <laughs> in this entire game. It's time for question two. What is the real reason Jane won't marry Francis or Franz in the, in the German? Locked in. Uh, the real reason that she won't marry this is going back to like the reality question from last time. The real reason. Okay, let me think about that. Mm-hmm. She only gives one reason why she can't marry him in the entirety of the film. Okay, I guess I'm locked in. I am locked in. All right. Since KJ looks the most confused, let's start <laughs> with him. I, so I can picture the scene. There's like two dudes sitting on a bench and she comes by and I don't know if that's when she tells them, but at the end of the movie... We find out in her mind, she's a queen and she's of a much more noble birth than um, Mr. Francis. So there's no way she could marry him. I mean, we've all seen Game of Thrones. So uh, because that's correct. Well, yeah, very that, good. That was my answer, the, the queen. She says it because they're, they're nobles that they can't decide these things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very good, my friends. Both of you earn a point. The only reason Jane gives that she can't marry Francis is she's a queen, a product of a mad, mad mind. But so when when does she say this? When in the movie is this? At the very end. Oh, at the very end. Okay, so when when they're sitting on the bench talking, that's not when she's... She walks past the bench. Mm -hmm. She does not interact with them. Okay, but that's when they start discussing and professing their love for her. 
even if funny enough in that intro scene they're talking like before i knew what the movie was about they said we are like among spirits and then she floated by i was like is she a ghost <laughs> like before we know anything about the movie yeah. uh talking about that scene i actually liked that quote because that was when you really kind of knew what was going on so francis goes jane i love you when will you marry me and then jane says we who are of noble blood may not follow the wishes of our hearts. <laughs> mm, okay. And yeah. that's at the end of the movie, not yes. when they're on the bench. Yeah. Okay. That's, at the, end, end that's at the end of the movie when you're, mm. you're like, oh, wait, she's also nuts. He's nuts. Because <laughs> 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 Cesari was in the background. He's like, that guy's Cesari. Don't, if he tells you your future, he's going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. And he's picking a flower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Very good. So, Nick has three points, KJ has two, and KJ, the last category is framed for a crime, so you're going to have to pick it. (laughs) I'll pick framed for a crime. Very good. Noble choice, noble choice. It's time for question three. This movie has a very particular beginning and end. Explain how this frame works in six words or less. You are not required to make a complete sentence, but you are required to cover the entire frame. Can you repeat the question again? I I agree with that. Explain how this frame, the frame of the movie, right, the particular and peculiar beginning and end, works in six words or less. So basically explain it, explain how the movie is, framing itself. Um, You're not required to make a complete sentence, but you are required to touch on both the beginning and the end. Are you trying to say we're supposed to do like a six word synopsis of the movie? A six word synopsis of the framing of the movie, which is the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end are in a different world than the middle. Kind of making sense? I'll find out in a second. One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> I think I'm locked in. Um, it's not a I'm haiku. I'm locked in. All right. Okay. So, KJ, you are up first. All right. Here's, well, th- wait, these words don't count. I'm going to use the and, words. And if it's not a correct sentence, like mine is technically. It doesn't have to be a complete sentence. Okay. It doesn't have to be um, proper English grammar. Okay. Because I'm cutting out a word. <laughs> this is a, a fragment. Yes. Okay. All right. Here, here, here it is. Spoilers, just like Scorsese's Shutter Island. Okay. Very creative. Nick, what do you have? I have expressionist portrayal of insane asylum patient. Ooh, this is a good one. Oh, damn. <laughs> nice work. Oh, wow. I don't know who to award it to. I can't believe it's only worth one point. It's only worth one point. Yeah. Um, I am going to give it to KJ because you're actually not just describing the style, but the actual, how the frame is working. Like there's a, a revelation in the end that um, we are actually in an in insane asylum. Ooh. And it was also, uh, also creative in the way you alluded to something in order to make your point. So. Well played, sir. I KJ, thought I'd get Tom on the expressionist. Yeah, yeah, that 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 did that did uh, tickle my Jimmy. 
<laughs> well, I don't know if I was going for that. <laughs> okay, so KJ, you have a point here, which oh, man. means you're tied. We're all tied this. up. Oh, man. Yep, so we're all tied up. We are all tied up going into our commercial break. We got to pay those bills, and we'll be right back after these messages. Check out Talking Pictures Trivia's sister podcast, Silent Pictures Trivia. Here's a quick sample. Like what you heard? Head on over to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com for more information on Silent Pictures Trivia. And we're back. Thanks again for our amazing sponsors who keep this show rolling. Tom, I'm going to turn it back to you for round two of Movie Quiz. All right. Excellent. So you, gentlemen, are tied. And since KJ began the first round, Nick, I will have you begin the second round. I'll let you know that each question is worth two points. And here are the categories. The subjective of the subjective of the subjective. The argument. With style. Okay. I'm going to go with style? Question mark? Okay, yes. With style. There's a question mark (laughs) at the end. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) It's time for... Question four. This is a nice, easy question to start off. Describe the style of this movie. And whoever has the best description wins. As many words as we want. We're not limited by Twitter or anything as here. As many words as you would like. But if you go on and on, I'm going to get bored and make you lose. I go first, I guess. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to ramble, and hopefully there'll be an answer in here somewhere. Uh, Not to sound, uh, to repeat a prior answer, but this is uh, an expressionist portrayal of an insane asylum patient, but more specifically, they base it as if it was a play being filmed. It has a very uh, minimal style when it comes to background and uh, stage setting and all of that. Everything was built on a very low budget. So they try to visualize this in you know, film, but it really could have been and was used as a play production. It's kind of funny to hear you say that, Nick. I actually thought it was um, kind of different than that because other movies from back then to me felt more like a stage play. Whereas this, the sets had a lot of depth which you wouldn't get on a stage. And I was really impressed that it actually kind of reminded me of... Um, the sets actually reminded me a little bit of a Terry Gilliam set where there was a lot in a small area. One of the things, and again, I know this is a question and not a discussion section, but when I was researching this, all of the shade and shadows and all of that, it was actually painted on. So everything was actually very low budget and that's all like kind of optical illusions. Mm. Uh, but we can talk about that later. Sure. I think it worked really well. Okay, and both excellent answers. Wait, 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 I had an answer. I was just responding to to Nick. Okay. (laughs) Damn, all right. (laughs) Okay, if that wasn't an answer, I can't wait for the answer. All right, what was the answer, (laughs) So I got an answer in four words or less. I can name that answer in four words or less. Um, I thought it was kind of a mucky Tim Burton style. Okay. 
So this might be surprising. I'm actually going to award this to KJ. <laughs> and there's a, but there's a particular reason. Nick got the expressionism is kind of the idea that this movie, the, the, the tradition this movie's working in. The problem is the movie is also deliberately working against the staged idea. Most movies before this were staging plays and movies like this are deliberately trying to not look like staged plays. And so I'm like, oh, Nick, you, you so had close. it in the bag. Yeah. So close. Uh, yes. And I also am fond of KJ's creative short answers. So, Kevin, two points to you. Yahoo. All right. So KJ is in the lead with two now. I'm falling apart here. All right. So who's up next? KJ? You yes, are I next. am. All right, the so categories are... again are mm-hmm. the subjective of the subjective of the subjective and the argument. I got to say, I kind of love our subjective answers. I don't know how the audience feels about these, but I would like to do the subjective of the subjective. Of the subjective. It's time for question five. What does KJ think that I think that Nick thinks is the most interesting design feature of this movie? Please be particular. Pick out... um, a prop piece, a set piece, a costume piece. Please be particular. But again, that link is, what does KJ think that I think that Nick thinks is the most interesting design feature of this movie? So just, just to be clear. KJ's going to get this right no matter what. <laughs> right, right, right. If I'm the first <laughs> one on the chain, <laughs> my answer is the answer. <laughs> So the best I can do, the best I can do is tie. <laughs> okay. Oh, a lot of pressure. I think the fix is in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can't wait for you to get this one wrong, KJ. We can fix this up, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it should be Tom. You should be the first. Yeah. What do I think that KJ thinks? That Nick thinks? There we go. No, wait, no. <laughs> okay. okay. That I actually have an answer to. So what does Tom think? I got to write this thing down. Here's a chain. What do I think that KJ thinks that that you think? Okay. What are we thinking about? (laughs) (laughs) The thing you're thinking about is the best design feature. So that could be a a piece of the set, a, a prop or something the character's resting on, sitting on, um, or it could be a costume piece. It wouldn't be a performance, let's say. That would be it. Got it. Yep. Okay. All right. I think I'm locked in. I'm also locked in. (laughs) Okay. So like always, we have multiple answers here. So not my answer to the question, but I wanted to say what I thought was the most uh, striking or interesting set piece. And I'm going to go with um, the queen's dress. I felt like her dress always stood out against everything else that was on the screen. Um, but I don't think that's what Tom thinks that I think that Nick thinks is the, uh, the set piece. What I think that Tom thinks that I think that Nick thinks is the set piece, I don't know quite how to say his name, is only written on the, on the, in the film, is Cesar's like makeup, Cesar's look. That's my answer. Cesar's, uh, his aesthetic. Very good. And Nick, what do you have? I got to boil this one down, okay? So in the end, it's what do I think 
And since Tom is very good about getting in my brain in the last few episodes, I can't overthink what I think. So I'm going to say Dr. Caligari, his portrayal, specifically his circular spectacles, his glasses. They were very, they stuck out a lot and they were kind of his signature. And even when he puts them on, we see the transition from him, you know, going at the twist from being the leader of the insane asylum to understanding that he thought this guy was Caligari. Thank you. Both excellent answers. Um, I will give you my personal favorite and then kind of tell you who, who won here. So my personal favorite was the enormous stools that everyone had to sit on, especially the town clerk. I love that stool desk setup. I would, I would love to have it, except I would use it once and then it would just be taking up room in my apartment. Um, but I'm that's gonna, not what you thought I thought. No, no, it is well, not. That's not what Tom thought I thought you thought. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and so we have then the glasses of Dr. Caligari and the kind of makeup aesthetic of uh, uh, Cesare. I'm going to actually go with KJ on this. That was very, that attracted my eye uh, throughout the whole film. Whenever he was on screen, just kind of looking at that, that makeup. That was also a particular design choice that was a big part of the production meetings, was what is this makeup going to look like? It was a way of uh, attaching this movie and its aesthetic to people like uh, Edvard Munch, the, the artist who did the screen. The faces in his work look similar. And though I didn't read it anywhere, it's my, I know Munch was a big inspiration to these people, and I have to think that that was where they were drawing from. It was good. I mean, the portrayal of uh, Cesare was good. I, yeah, yeah I, I can't argue with that. I just had to think what I thought that other people thought <laughs> that I thought. Yeah, so the question is absurd, so I wouldn't say <laughs> that about it. Although, on the other side, like, did you feel that Dr. Cal uh, Caligari's like, spectacles really were like his signature? Yeah, they, were, they seemed to be used to indicate... Um, you know, kind of who he was, right? Like he puts on the spectacles yeah. and you know that, uh, be because the, the faces are kind of forgettable. Um, and so having the spectacles there to indicate mm -hmm. this is Caligari. My, my favorite actually aspect of Caligari's outfit was his gloves, which had the same markings in them as his hair. <laughs> they had these kind of line, lined <laughs> hair and his gloves had the same markings in them. And I thought, oh, I love that. <laughs> that is very Tim Burton-esque. And he wore a hat too, right? Yeah, that's why I said his, yeah. his aesthetic, but his glasses really, but yeah. also the whole... I would have said his hat, but now that you pointed out the glasses, I think they're more striking than the hat. And then the gloves too, I feel like... You could have had, if you remove his physical body and just had the hats, glasses, and gloves, that, that's, that's what I imagine when I'm imagining yeah. Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a lot of this movie, right? Is you, you could take the people out, and if you just have the, the, the totems of them, um, the, the movie still works really well. <laughs> I, can't, yeah, I, was just, I can't say this with great certainty, but he may have been the only one wearing glasses in the movie. I can't recall if there were any other... Does Dr. Olsen wear them? It's possible someone does, but maybe they're very fine and they're not like as yeah. obvious as his. His stand out. Yeah, Dr. Olsen is also kind of forgettable. He's, the, yeah. he's Jane's father who goes... I can't remember if they did or not. With 
Francis to check if the uh, check on the Sonambulist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, very good. Okay, so, KJ has a, a, a giant lead here. Yeah, he's, a, he's ahead by four. Um, however, this last question, though you, you can't win at all, Nick. Um, <laughs> the argument can be split. The points can be split in this question. So this question goes to Nick. Nick. <laughs> it's time for question six. This question works in this way. You have to state an argument as an answer to this question, and you have to give one reason why you are defending that position using evidence from the movie. So you have to declare why you think something is true, why, you, why your position is true, using at least one piece of evidence from the movie. All right? And then are we debating it afterwards or anything? Or we're just... You can debate it afterwards if you like. All right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's I'm losing either like. way, so I don't know <laughs> if I like to. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's, here is the question. Why do the filmmakers elect to make the film in this way? Why did the filmmakers elect to make this film in this way? And when you say in this way, we can pick something for that too? In the style that the movie was made. Oh. Oh, I'm first. <laughs> Take your time. Let me know when you're locked in. And it's evidence from the movie, right? Not external things that are going on in the world. Okay. Or do we pick something I, I external will... from the world and then find something in the movie that shows you, that? I had thought something in the movie, but if you want to do something external to the film and that's some evidence you can use that is fine with me no no i'll stick i'll stick within the in the film i like that i mean, actually i would love better. to hear what what external evidence you know external to the movie you would use that's perfectly fine i think i'm locked in okay so I don't know but i'm gonna go for it <laughs> all right nick start us off well based on prior conversations they filled it in the style, in the expressionist style, because they did not want it to be portrayed as if it was just recording a stage production. <laughs> <laughs> Examples of this include lots of details within the different scenes, which would not be easily done within a typical play. Any examples of that? <laughs> uh, yes, there are a plethora of examples, including um, Dr. Caligari's um, residence or where he's staying when he's uh, with the traveling fair. And you have scenes that are outside of his exterior. You have scenes that are in, in the interior. Um, there's a lot of different areas that they film. It's not just one shot stage front. Very good. KJ, what do you say? Okay. So hopefully this, this fits the criteria of the question. But I'm going to cite the rudeness of the clerk to represent how it must have felt in that time during Germany. So you had World War I, which must have just on a day-to-day -day basis must have felt like a very strange time you know, incomparable to peacetime. And then you had peacetime. So you had wartime and peacetime and things didn't quite make sense. Things that you do on an everyday basis in wartime are quite different than what you do 
in peacetime. And I think uh, at least at the time of this recording, we're going through a little bit of that now with COVID-19. Things that we used to do regularly, we're not doing regularly. And things that we used to not do regularly, we're doing regularly. So when Dr. Caligari walks up to that clerk and he's being rude for no particular reason, really, I mean, it's a circus. Uh, just to give some background. So Dr. Caligari wants to show off his um, sleepwalker. How do you say the, yes. the word? Synobulist. The synobulist. Um, during like a like a fair, which seems like it's something completely reasonable to put into a fair, but the 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 permit to get that you have to go through this clerk, and this clerk is kind of mocking him, laughing at him. He ultimately gets the permit, um, but it, again, that clerk's being really rude for no particular reason. It just doesn't seem to match up with everything else that's going on. That is what I think they were trying to show throughout the movie is how uh, how different reality can be because of what's going on in the world. Very good. And I think the points go to KJ. What? That was just a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, you're dealing with um, a transition from a, the greatest war the world had ever known at that time into a peacetime that was not felt like a peacetime that caused kind of a depression in, in the Weimar Republic. So. From the clerk. Well, I think the clerk's rudeness is, is sort of part of that. It's this kind of new, it's been around a little bit, but it's sort of this cruel world that um, these people are trying to interact with. This world that doesn't make sense, that's distorted. Well, KJ, I will wish you congratulations. I even spit back Tom's information right at him, and I still got it wrong. So my hat's off to you. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, uh, you. I, I remained defeated. <laughs> and uh, that was a lot of, all kidding aside, that was a lot of, uh, of fun, Tom, uh, those questions. Uh, I, I really did enjoy it, even if I am a, a giant loser for this episode. Uh, we for this do episode. Have, yes, for this episode. <laughs> for this episode. Uh, we do have to take a quick break to pay those bills, and we'll be right back for our movie rant. This is Jill. She had a school presentation, and her parents did not buy her Instant Combustion Poster Board, the only poster board that sets itself on fire. As a consequence, Jill failed the assignment, the class, and the grade. Years and years later, she would be rejected by every single college she applied for, and was forced, merely by circumstance, into a life of prostitution. Now she works under 20 hours per week while making six figures. She likes her job and has time to pursue her hobbies. This is Mindy. Mindy's parents bought her instant combustion poster board. She aced the assignment, the class, and was accepted into Stanford as well as every single Ivy League school. And also Tufts. She now works as a computer programmer and makes six figures. She likes her job and has time to pursue her hobbies. But unlike Jill, Mindy is not a dirty, dirty prostitute. Next time, go with Instant Combustion Poster Board from Burnt Boo Boo Incorporated. Set your mind on fire, and also your poster board. Hey 
And we're back. Once again, KJ, congratulations. Now, Tom, I wasn't quite sure what the final points were there. I want to know how badly KJ beat me this week. When I left off, it was 7-3, and then he had that masterful answer for that last question. Uh, What did he end up with? Um, So we got another two points for that. Okay. So that would be, what, 9-3? 9-3. Okay, Mm -hmm. KJ, I just wanted to make sure the records have how wonderful that you performed today and how horrible I performed today. (laughs) <laughs> oh, they have been uh, duly noted, and they are recorded for all time. <laughs> Let yeah. the record stand. No, it was a lot of fun. I loved it. It was great. Yeah, the thing that you always had the expressionist thing, which I wanted to give points for, but you would say, like, <laughs> you would say like the right thing, and then counter it with like the exact I know which opposite. One. <laughs> I know which one you're talking about. Like, yeah, it's an expressionistic betrayal that um, <laughs> makes things look like you know, like a stage, like, ah, (laughs) they deliberately said they didn't want to do it. (laughs) It's time for movie rent. But I think you are right about the kind of, um, the, the, there is a degree of simplicity to it. It's not expressionistic in the way it's shot or the way the camera moves. It's, it's fairly like point and click sort of use, use a modern term. It's just like the, the framing device and the, the set design really do all the work. Um, which apparently the framing device was not, uh, the, the writers of this did not come up with that. It was actually Fritz Lang who came up with it, the famous director of Metropolis. So Tom, were those scenes shot after the rest of the movie was kind of finished or? No, when? no. I think they were, they were shot alongside it. I, I think the, uh, I don't think they did a lot of reshoots, if any at all. Um, what's interesting about it, there's a lot of people involved in this. And so the, there isn't a unified account. So we don't even know if the writers were on set during it. Apparently there's like, um, there's some accounts in which um, Hans Janwitz and Carl Mayer, uh, the, the writers of this, of, of the script for this, were on set and kind of, um, you know, arguing for particular things. And there's other accounts where they were just gone. They just weren't part of the filmmaking. And nobody seems to know, you know, wh- which one is, is true. Um, but they, yeah, they wrote the script between 1918, 1919. They were both um, incredibly upset by World War I. And the script is in part a response to that. Yeah, I, I read a little bit about that too, that the accounts are different and some of them say that the director actually added the opening and closing scenes, but other ones say that uh, Fritz Lang uh, mm-hmm. claims that the introduction scenes were you know, in the original script. So th- there seems to be some confusion over how that was done. Yeah, there's also some confusion or some animosity about whether they were necessary. And I think the original writers have said that they, they weren't particularly fond of that framing device. Um, but I think that framing device works really nicely. I, I think it actually makes the movie. I'm yeah. sure KJ would agree when he read the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was surprising. <laughs> no, no. I, I, <laughs> I really do think that is what I'm like, oh, that's a nice twist. I almost felt like it was... Um, an early like twilight zone. Like you could see that kind of spin at the end. That's what it actually, not the, not the style or the silent 
aspect mm-hmm. of this. But I was like, that felt like a like a Twilight Zone type episode. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. they weren't planning on doing that, what was the movie then? The movie was just the the encounter with Dr. Caligari. Okay, and... Um, and Cesar, I guess, at that point. Yes, so that yeah, would have been a, that would have actually yep. been okay. like a real story versus in someone's mind. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Because it, it's the, the movie is, and Nick, Nick mentioned this a lot, Nick deserves more points. Let's address it. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's go back <laughs> and get some more points. Like eight, six. I, I'd be honest lost, with you. No, 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 no. <laughs> a loss is a loss no matter how close you get. But I think what actually screwed me up in this was me looking at trivia and looking more into the movie because that's when I found out about how, like, the sets were made out of paper and the shadows were painted on the walls and it was super low budget. Like, the whole sets were constructed with, like, $800. Like, I think that's what got me off the expressionist answers that you were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> but, this, I mean, this movie is part of the, the expressionistic movement. Um, and I don't know how much either of you guys have, have read about that. Just for this movie. I did uh, a little. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. So expressionism is, it starts off as an, an art movement. Um, and I, I won't go into all the details because you'll stab me. Uh, <laughs> But, it, I mean, it kind of starts around 1905. There's this magazine called uh, Die Brücke. It means the bridge. And it was this kind of, whatever, bridge between the past and the, and the present and, you know, et cetera. But the idea with uh, expressionism as it moves on to the stage, so as it becomes a stage thing in, like, the 19-teens, um, is that it's supposed to depict the inside of someone's mind. So it's supposed to be, like, you're inside someone's head. And so, um, you know, you get a lot of expressionistic plays, which up to this point, like the main avant-garde thing was realism. Uh, you, we think of realism as the standard, but it was actually kind of like the new thing uh, in like the 1870s. Uh, and this kind of pushes back against it because you go to the play and, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. People <laughs> are just chanting and, and there's weird set design and things like that. Um, it does cross over to America uh, with a number of plays, most famously Eugene O'Neill's The Hairy Ape, or Pulitzer Prize, uh, uh, excuse me, Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning playwright, and Sophie Treadwell's Machinal, which was, I think, on Broadway within the last 10 years. Um, but that's, that's what's going on. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be an individual's psyche that we're inside of, but it's inside a, a mad head. Uh, and so the framing device, which is shot naturalistically, in the beginning and, and at the end is the naturalism that lets us know whose head we're inside for the madness of the, the middle portion of the picture. I feel like I would have gotten more points if I just said expressionist and naturalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to the look and aesthetic, I think KJ alluded to this a bit in some of the questions and some of our dialogue. I did think it looked pretty cool. Uh, the set design with the lack of symmetry and the distortion. And then when I was doing a little bit more research on it, uh, just to learn more about the movie, how the shadows were painted on and the light beams uh, were back, um, ended up being the backdrops. Like the way they used unusual camera angles and even to match the lack of symmetry on the sets. It, it was, I did like that. I thought it was pretty cool. And KJ, I know you alluded to some uh, people that it reminded you of. You want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, it, it felt like a, you know, a Tim Burton style. Um, 
But I was also very surprised when I first saw it, I was thinking, how did they do this back in 1920? For some reason in my head, it's easier to make straight lines and, you know, correct symmetrical things. I couldn't, it took me a while to just think, oh yeah, they could just paint it or they could, they could build these things. So I was a little surprised about that. Um, the other set piece that was surreal that confused me a lot for a while was the chair that he sits in in his room. In his room, he's got a chair that has a very high back. Um, it's kind of a normal size chair, except it's the back was like four or five times taller than it should be. And my first thought, because I, I didn't know that we were doing expressionism or anything, I was like, <laughs> man, th why did they make chairs like that back then? Did, did, like the guy was just making a chair and he's like, you know what? Make the back tall. No, keep going. Like this isn't enough. So it was a little, it took me a while to understand that they weren't trying to show the 1920s or the 1910s that they were doing something fantastical. Um, I guess when Tim Burton does it, it's a little bit more, well, it might be easier because we're of his time, but it's a little more on the nose where he turns the dial up to 11 on Johnny Depp or whoever happens to be around. Um, it was an aesthetic choice though. And even like Tom said with the stools and in in some of the questions, that was, they were looking to be a little different. The design, the kind of most famous cut of this film or the famous scene in the movie is when Cesare picks up Jane and carries her over that building, which is partially a, a rooftop and part of bridge. And it's impossibly shaped. Um, you know, and this reminds me of so much of the first Tim Burton Batman when they go into the cathedral, when the Joker takes Kim Basinger's character, I don't remember her name. Vicky Vale, maybe? Vicky Vale, thank you, very good. Um, Vicky Vale up the cathedral stairs, and you have a shot of the cathedral outside panned up where it's impossibly tall and narrow. And when they go in it, it's, it's not a building that could exist. This thing would just tumble over or something <laughs> like that. Um, and then, yeah, that's how that comes out of, I think, this film. And it comes out of kind of, you know, the expressionism. I love where the windows are in different areas. They kind of slant into the side and shape like coffins. Even um, the doorways, the doorways, when they're going in yeah. places, they're like mm, mm -hmm. weird shapes. Yeah, and they're like hinged weird or something. Yeah. They open more yeah. than they should or... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of that um, might also be the angling of the camera too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, and the, the actual coffin that Cesar is kept in, that's not that strange. No, that's actually like a, a, a rectangular crate almost. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it kind of sticks out because it's not strange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good point. Um, this is kind of off topic, but because we're talking about the cabinet or the coffin, when there's the scene where he's like, he couldn't have been, I've been staring him at him all, all night. And then they take the coffin out and it was uh, a dummy <laughs> of Cesare. <laughs> it was kind of random. <laughs> well, so that, that confused me too. Yeah. I, thought, I thought in my head, I'm like, all right, so maybe Cesare is a dummy and the trick is he's animating it to life. So I didn't hmm. understand that that wasn't the same thing. Oh, okay. I was like, wait, he was just in the coffin. How is he now out? Yeah, killing people or whatever he was doing. There was a brief moment way before we knew that it was a dummy that I was like, oh, maybe it's like a twin situation, <laughs> you know, where there's like the one sleeping and the one out. <laughs> but mm -hmm. they answered that quickly for me. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> you know, I think the, the, the stuff with the dummy in the coffin is a little silly, um, you know, and even the, 
because they do have this a fairly straightforward plot so to speak right it's not completely bonkers you can follow it there's you know murders one two three and you you know who's doing it and kind of why um so it is relative to kind of other art of its type or other other plays that were similar in style to this fairly streamlined it's fairly normal but I, I think, yeah, what ends up being taken away from it, and w- one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is it doesn't seem to be the plot or performances. It seems to just be the look. Like, set and art is, is, is what is taken from this movie. It's what people do. Uh, and, like the, and the frame device, too, because the frame device sort of highlights why you were doing this. Um, but, yeah, uh, the, the kind of artwork of it comes from the, you know, the, these three different... Uh, artists um most famously i think walter reinman was one of the art set directors who had a a fairly long career before this his career fell off after this movie um but they the three of them were were associated with this this german magazine the strom which um collected artwork of this type together with um kind of stories as well and poetry that was expressionistic, written in this expressionistic style. And they used to do these postcards where they'd have these postcards in the magazine that they would paint the back of them in this kind of expressionistic manner. Um, It ended up becoming a real problem when the Nazis came along and decided that this was all degenerate art. And, you know, a lot of these people lost everything. They lost all of their artwork. Um, But it's interesting, like all the art and set designers are not like film people there are these painters who worked for this uh, this magazine. Talking about things that uh, outside might have confused or would have upset outsiders. I, I was reading in one of the trivia. I thought this was interesting as a, a campaign for when this movie was coming out before the initial release. They put posters up um, throughout Berlin of uh, the translation is you have to become Caligari, and they were put up all over Berlin without the slightest hint they were a promotion for the upcoming movie. <laughs> So I can imagine in these times mm-hmm. that might have stirred up the audience. That's like, like a really, really cool marketing for the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really just, cool. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. No one knew. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> What's this? <laughs> this is Caligari. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. That's, yeah. That's a really good marketing thing. Yeah. That was uh, awesome. Like, it's the production history too with this is cool. Did you, did you either of you read Decla? Read about Decla? Oh no, no. no. Uh, it's it's really cool. So there's so what happens in Germany and like I'm gonna rant, but uh, but it's movie rant. Um, <laughs> it's like in 19- only there was a place for that. <laughs> in 1917, the German government decides there's too much anti-German stuff going on, and we're fighting a war, so we got to fix that right away. So they put all of the movies, movie studios together in this thing called UFA, which is their big movie studio. And they put um, uh, Ludendorff in charge of it. General Ludendorff was the guy who was in charge of the Western Front. And he became, you know, in charge of this movie studio. Um, and afterwards, it only lasted like a year. But after they sold, Germany sold UFA to, to private hands. And they had all of this stuff, all of these resources. And they were making these really kind of big costume movies. Um, Ernst Lubitsch came out of this studio system or the single studio system. Um, And they made these real costume films, costume filma, 
uh, <laughs> and Cabinet of Dr. Caligare was produced by the, um, this, this independent studio called Decla, which just came, I think came together for this movie. Uh, though I think it maybe the resources existed before. Um, and they made like the biggest movie in Germany. And it's just cool because this is a giant behemoth that controlled everything, you know, that was kind of established by the yeah. government. And this tiny little movie studio with a small budget. And they became like the big deal of, uh, you know, of 1920. Wow. I, I think mm -hmm. when I was reading this too, uh, this was a fairly low budget movie um, for the time. I, I've lost track of the page, but I think it was $18,000 or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was. And I think originally from what I saw, it, it didn't initially do well in the States. Oh, probably not. Yeah, okay. it, yeah, it didn't it, it initially, and I think later it got a following. And some of the trivia that I was looking up, I, I alluded to this earlier, but this a lot of people do consider this the first true horror film, mm -hmm. which there are other ones that had macabre type, you know, settings or or stories, but this one seems to across the board get the credit for being the first true horror film. And some of the things I found interesting when I was looking into the writer Hans Janowitz, how he came up with this. There were two tidbits that I, I thought were interesting. Um, he said that he got the idea when he was actually at a carnival uh, and he saw a strange man lurking in the shadows. And the next day he heard a girl was brutally murdered there. Um, and then he's, when he went to the funeral, he said he saw the same man lurking around. Again, he has no proof that they were connected but that kind of motivated him. And there was another story of wow. when he visited a fortune teller predicting that he would survive the first world war. And that inspired him with the whole scene with uh, Cesare and Alan's death at the fair. So these were different elements that inspired some of the, the story. Hmm. And to put that 18 K in perspective, $18,000 in 1920 money would be about 250 K at the time of recording here. So that's still, yeah. It's still, I, I don't know what budgets for movies were like back in the 1990s. Well, but the only thing... Pretty really low. generous. Yeah, the uh, thing I can tell you, just to put it into... Remember in the beginning when I was giving some of like the highest grossing films? Now, again, this is talking about what they gross, not what they, ma uh, what they cost. But they were making... Um, the minimum on that top five list was a million dollars gross and way down niece made four and a half million dollars. Now, again, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, maybe I can find it real quick, but uh, it seemed like they were making something based on how much money goes into movies now and how much they try to make on the ones that are successful. Uh, I would imagine they had, I'm trying to see if I can find the budget. Uh, budget was 700,000 on that movie. Uh, way down east, which made four and a half million. Wow! So now again, that seems like a big box office movie that was number one of that year. But would you say two hundred fifty thousand in today's uh, dollars, today's yeah. money? Eighteen thousand in their mm -hmm. money. It's very low budget. Wow! I yeah. saw another thing that was saying like the the actors made like thirty dollars a day, and as I said, the the sets were eight hundred dollars. <laughs> so they did a lot for that yeah because it was it, it's movies especially in germany at the time were really interested in like big lavish costumes that was the thing like you do a costume drama they even had a word for it um and so this was really really different um, but i imagine with like a costume drama it's expensive um 
you know, it, it's probably harder to afford things like that. And you also had um, larger and more elaborate sets going on at this time. This is happening throughout the 19 teens in Europe and also, uh, also in America, because D.W. Griffith starts doing that. Way Down East is a D.W. Griffith film, mm-hmm. um, which we should do at one point. It's really interesting. But anyway, um, and, and so like having this kind of like cheap disruptor is really interesting. What's also interesting though is apparently people didn't start making movies like this after. There wasn't like this horror trend that followed. Apparently it was just like, wow, this is great. This makes a ton of money. And then they just went back to doing the same old crap that we were doing before. <laughs> you know what, Tom, though? What you're saying makes perfect sense in the silent uh, movies era because it's visual. You don't have the audio. So mm-hmm. you need to make things in their mind look pretty or exciting. And mm-hmm. that's where you're getting these lavish sets and these uh, uh, crazy attire. That makes sense. This kind of broke away from that mold, which I yeah. like. I always like making something interesting on a budget. Like, I mm-hmm. think that's a really cool challenge. I'm sure they didn't do it just for the challenge. They wanted <laughs> to get it made mm-hmm. and didn't have the resources. But that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, because there's all of this work going into like, how do we make a movie a movie and not a play? Like that, that's a big anxiety through like the, early, like the first decade of the 20th century and then a little bit into the second one. Um, and so like more money at costumes seems to be, you know, move the camera around a lot, you know, um, like deeper sets and things. And Caligari just finds this really innovative way of doing it which is still in conversation with what's going on on the stage, which I think is cool. It's both cinematic, but inspired by kind of stage works that are going on. One of the other things I was thinking about is this is a German film, but it's a silent film. So in order for them to do a worldwide release, they really only have to update those title cards as opposed to having to redub it or resub it. I was just thinking it's, it's interesting because of the limitations of technology, Mm -hmm. it kind of made it easier to, distribute that elsewhere i mean there may be some cultural things lost in translation but because everything is kind of mimed out not mimed but because things are told visually on the film you don't need to translate that into other languages for other countries yeah i one edition i saw had english intertitles it had the same kind of zigzags on the back of the the intertitle but it was written in english it wasn't even a it wasn't even a translation. It was just written out. Um, so I, was wonder, I wonder if they actually did that, if they did English intertitles and just put them in when the, the movie... The version closed. I saw was all English. Was it even like on the screen? Yes. Oh, okay. Maybe that is... Yeah, the, 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 uh, the version I saw, all of the intertitles, it wasn't like they had German and then English under it. It mm-hmm. was... Yeah, know, I I saw the same thing you did. Yeah. The, the other thing, talking about language, I thought, because I don't watch a lot of silent films, I thought it was interesting that there were scenes that didn't have intertitle cutaways or like following that actually had dialogue. Their mouths were moving. And I was waiting for the intertitle to explain what they had said, but it never comes. So I thought that, I'm like, I wonder what they're actually stay, saying on the mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. because they, did you guys see that? Or, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They had a lot of times when they're talking about like the, uh, uh, about Cesare and just, you know, you have that. <laughs> <laughs> Tom's currently miming a what, what, what? 
<laughs> that it's was... also in German, so you're trying yeah. to... <laughs> what? <laughs> it was German miming. <laughs> yeah. No, this... I, I stern mime. <laughs> I, I really did not enjoy this film. It was uh, a break from some of the things we've, you know, watched even before we started recording these, you know, just on our ongoing conversations. And one of the things that I always find interesting with these movies, especially when they're outside of our, our time frame, is some of the vocabulary. And we talked about this last week with the Warriors, where they had a very unique lingo. Okay. Now this one wasn't really foreign, it was just words that hadn't aren't used very often. And it's funny, the the main uh, word they use a lot, somnambulist. I actually remember that word from back in the SAT prep days. <laughs> It was just a word that I thought was really cool. And they could have used sleepwalker, but somnambulist sounds so much better. Mm-hmm. And then there was another word that came up that I just wasn't familiar with, but I, I, I don't know why I found it intriguing. Uh, mountebank is a word I, yeah. I, I, I didn't know, mountebank. And all it means is like uh, charlatan or quack. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I got it, but I was just like, of all the things, I just wanted to bring it up because I was like, those are cool words, you know? Somnambulist I knew, Mountebank I, I just know something that never crossed my path. And it's not like super foreign, but not used in normal day. It's it's part of this kind of carnival barker thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the you know, the, the, the somnambulist, it's it's this presentation of something in a way that's very stagey yeah. and larger than life and also exotic, which is a big thing. This is why he's Caligari and not, you know, Dr. Long or, or, or something yeah. more yeah. familiar to them. Right. He's this foreigner from this hot climate, which was a real thing. They really thought like, well, you're from Italy. It's warm. You are like this, therefore. Um, <laughs> you know, and the English are sensible because it's always freaking cold there. Um, you know, but you have this, this foreign entity, this exotic thing. And, you know, by, by taking the, this Italian name, yeah. by having this kind of, you know, the somnambulist exhibit, that, that type of thing, you are sort of indicating the foreign or the exotic. Yeah. Right. That that's why it's Caligari. And I think it's why the movie is also called that. But the yeah. actual not just within the the text of the film, but yeah. why the authors themselves are saying Dr. Caligari instead of Dr. Long or, or, yeah. or whatever. It's that it, it is this foreign threat that's coming in. They were just jazzing it up a little bit because somnambulism is the condition. It's just sleepwalking. That's what, it's yeah. a fancy way of saying sleepwalking. But those just jumped out to me, and I, I, di- I didn't want to end with that, at least uh, bringing them up as uh, two words that I thought were cool <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> I did want to ask, too, um, yeah. about kind of the expressionistic style and the very particular way it does it in the film. It is the inside of Francis or Franz's head we're getting. We're getting his psychosis demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that works well? Um, do you think it it reflects kind of on the times that in which this movie is made, or do you think it kind of comes off as cheesy? No, I, I'll just I'll jump right in. I I think they did a very good job with it. I I, I enjoyed the portrayal. And as I said, it made me think of other things in, in modern times, like, well, Twilight Zone, the original weren't modern times, but even now to update it, you know, Black Mirror or something like that. Like, if it wasn't a silent film, I could have seen that type twist in other portrayals of media and stories today. Like, that could have been an hour TV episode. Yeah, I thought the sets were great. I thought it looked 
awesome. Um, if that was supposed to be inside of Francis's mind, I'm kind of disappointed in my mind because I've never seen something look quite that cool or eerie during a dream or when I'm imagining things. So if that's literally supposed to be what somebody might picture when they're picturing things, that makes it even all the cooler in terms of an art. Yeah, I think it's supposed to, it's, it's supposed to sig signify the damage as well, the damage within his mind. Another thing I was thinking, if Tim Burton, I don't know if he's listening, but if he's not working on too much right now, I would love to see The Warriors remade as a silent movie. In the style of Caligari? In the, yeah, right? Uh, I, 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 following I can't the plot wait of for Indiana the, Jones? No, 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 no. I, I can't wait for the, the, uh, the, the words after the scene. Warriors come out and play. <laughs> I think it have to be two title cards, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was looking at the original book of the Warriors. Apparently the Warriors are not in the original The Warriors. <laughs> They're not called The Warriors. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, well, well Tom, uh, thank you so much for bringing this one to our attention. I, I, I think we thoroughly enjoyed uh, discussing this movie. Once again, if we haven't thanked him, uh, congratulated him enough, I want to congratulate KJ for winning uh, this week's uh, episode. Um, and another thanks. I'm just thanking KJ all the time. I want to thank uh, KJ, our loquacious editor, uh, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's, which is my recommendation from 1975, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Should be a fun one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.